0: self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague.
1: Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode 134 for Monday the 31st of December 2018. My guest on today's show is Orna Ross, an award-winning and best-selling independent novelist and poet who also writes guides for other authors and creative entrepreneurs. She's the founder and director of the Alliance of Independent Authors, Ally, which is the professional association for self-publishing writers, Also, The Creativist Club, a support, motivation and accountability group for creative entrepreneurs. She has been named one of the 100 most influential people in publishing by UK publishing trade magazine, The Bestseller. When we caught up for the podcast, I began by asking Orna to tell me all about her early work in media and publishing, years before she'd even thought about the Alliance of Independent Authors.
2: I kind of always wanted to be a writer, um, but I grew up in Ireland where being a writer meant being Yeats or Joyce, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I didn't kind of tell anybody that I wanted to be a writer and I decided I would uh, teach children other, you know, about great writers. So that's what I set off to do, did English Lit and came out of college and did teach for a while, but the school system and everything didn't work. And then I started freelancing as a freelance features journalist. I worked at that for many years, um, but then I I really did have that bug to write fiction. So I started to... Coming up to a significant birthday, realised it was now or never kind of thing. So I settled in to write a novel and half. It was a ridiculously ambitious project for a first novel because when you write a first novel, you're kind of teaching yourself how to write fiction as well as doing the thing. So it took me many, many years to, to, to finish it. And then it took me many, many years to find a publisher for it. And um, I found journalism and fiction writing very incompatible at that time uh, I think I could, could probably you know once again once you know how to write fiction you can do it but learning how to do it you really do need well I did need to give it a lot of attention so I started teaching writing then instead And um, opened a writing school in Dublin, a small school, which was based at the James Joyce Centre. And then um, out of that came a literary agency because a number of our students were uh, having some success um, and being given terrible contracts. So uh, two of us went off to London to learn how to read publishing contracts and about rights and intellectual property and all that kind of stuff and started to, you know, work on behalf of some of these authors while continuing with their own work and teaching and stuff. And then all of that came to an end, I'll put it that way. Um, it's, a, it's another long story in itself, but I got cancer and had a bad reaction to the treatment and ended up, you know, pulling back from work completely for a while, just taking a complete hiatus. I moved uh, with my family from Dublin to London and when I came back to work, self-publishing had started and I had published my novels um, with Penguin and we had creative differences and uh, that led me to self-publishing, I suppose. And as soon as I started self-publishing, I just knew this was me. I just loved that combination. And looked around for an association to join and there wasn't one. And then having had a very good rest, I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, there we are.
1: Right, I was going to say, I'm going to stop you there. Don't get into self-publishing yet, because there's things I want to dig into in your sure. in your former life. Now, the first thing you said is that you uh, you've done journalism. I'm a former mm. journalist, and I've spoken to many former journalists. And one of the things most of us agree on, except you, is that because we're used to deadlines, and no one skips a deadline in in journalism. You don't, you know, you have to be there. You just have to get the stuff done. Sure. I'm surprised that then subsequently it took you so long to write that first book.
2: Because it was it was a three generational multi-layered book and it was two hundred and twenty uh, two hundred and thirty thousand words long. You should have done better on I but the book chose me. <laughs> That's all I can say. It was ridiculous. It was crazy. I mean I it wasn't my first book. I had written some nonfiction. And I had published some academic work. Um, I, along the way, I also taught um, creative and imaginative practice and uh, cultural studies at the University of College of Dublin. And I had published work, lots of stuff around that. But yeah, when it came to fiction, well, I think it was the old Joyce and you know Yeats in the back of my head still, or something. I don't know. It did. It was ridiculous. It took a ridiculously long time. I can only agree. The other
1: thing I didn't realise about you, Orna, is that you'd had a cancer diagnosis at a time in your life. And again, I've spoken to many authors now who have had that life changing, you know, confrontation with your own mortality. And, and often it's given them that kick that they need, the impetus that they need to make a change in their life. Did it have that impact on you?
2: Oh, totally. Totally. Though it wouldn't be right to say that I reacted to it in that way, it came as part of a huge change on 40 fronts. So it, it was a very strange time in my life. So but I do remember thinking, you know, I just hope I get more years. And um, first of all, it was about my two kids and seeing them into adulthood. Um, they were kind of mid-teens at the time. And secondly, it was, I haven't actually, I've only got started, you know, I've only started doing what I really want to do. And, uh, you know, I just hope I get more time. So I did. So it was great. You also
1: used the P word, publisher, when Mm. we were talking. Now, Mm. I don't think of Orna Ross and publishers and Penguin used the the P word, Penguin, as well. (laughs) So now, come on, you know, where where I come into the story is um, in London, at Foyle's. When you're, you know, in the early days of the Alliance of Independent Authors, it's kind of where we all know you. And I'm really interested to explore this former life that I think we know less about. Sure. So this this sounds like Trad Orna, almost.
2: Oh, it was. It was Trad with a capital T. And uh, it didn't, you know, when I got my, my t- I had 54 um, submissions, okay, 54 or 53 rejections. This was number 54 and I hit yes. And I was incredibly just not taking no for an answer. I mean, I did get offers before that, but they were not the right offer and I was not going to go with it. Uh, I just, you know, I knew what I wanted because at that time there was no self-publishing, really. I had self-published a fiction book for um, a group of women I used to work with and that had gone very well within that group. But that was a, it was print publication. You had to distribute it through the bookstores. It was so much invoices and returns and it was just such an administrative nightmare that I said I, I would never do that again. So um, I was looking for a publisher with the reach that I wanted for this book. Having spent so many years putting it together, I was very, very happy with it. It did what I kind of set out for it to do. And I knew the kind of publisher I wanted. So. I kept looking for that kind of publisher and um, while I did get offers, as I said, along the way, I turned a few offers down because I knew the publisher didn't have the reach that I wanted or they wanted me to do things to the book that I wasn't prepared to do. So, um, as I said, 53 knows, and then number 54 was I thought I'd won the literary lottery. I'm o- I am always use that term. I really felt like I was just over the moon. Uh, it was a two book deal, very generous the ideal, you know, what you what you think of as the absolute ideal and the right kind of marketing budget and all that kind of stuff. So off we went. But that, the best day was the, was the day I signed the contract. It didn't really uh, go that well. So they had a very different vision for the book. It turned out once they got talking to the supermarkets and the outlets that they were pitching, um, for the book and they got big orders from Tesco's and then they just changed, the whole conversation changed and I was not welcome and as part of the, the branding or the marketing strategy or anything like that, which I found very frustrating because having, you know, I was working as an agent and working with, with other authors and I was in conversations with their publishers and having more influence than my publisher was prepared to allow me. And I couldn't understand why the author was so unwelcome in the publishing house. And aside from the PR person that you were assigned to, you know, was assigned to you, there was, by that stage, it's too late. You've, you know, you've lost control of the cover and and the whole messaging. So the books were put out as the first one was, um, neon pink and just really everything that I hated in a book cover. You couldn't see the woman's face and, you know, pretty young thing kind of wafting through the sand. And there was a a relationship story at the heart of the book, but it was, as I said, it was a multi-generational, it was based around the Irish Civil War, which, followed the signing of um, the Independence Treaty. So it was a novel for me about independence at the national level, at the personal level. Um, there was a lot going on there that was important to me and it was based on a true life story Um the killing of my own uncle, my great uncle during that war. So They put it out as chicklet, as it was called back then, and it was very successful commercially, and they got their money back uh, from the big advance, and I did well in that way, but it was creatively completely dispiriting and frustrating. The second book then was about uh, the poet W.B. Yeats, who I mentioned now four times. He's huge, um, you know, he's, he's one of my masters, and um, I wanted to tell the true story of his, uh, a part of his life, a very bizarre love triangle between his muse, Maud Gone and her daughter. The three of them had a, a very strange summer in Normandy in, in 1918. And I wanted to tell that story and kind of bust some myths about the poet and the writing of poetry and the write- and writing generally and all that kind of stuff. So again, it was a book that while it it. it is story driven and the story and the characters are huge and and it's world war one setting and all of that kind of thing what they did to it was just crazy um because they said okay you had success first time out doing a multi-layered story you know with moving forwards and backwards in time we're going to do that again so but i said but It doesn't do that. And they said, well, you know, that other story you were talking about, they're both mother-daughter stories. Why don't we put them together and we get that effect and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I said no. And they said, well, just do. And so I did because she made a compelling argument, but I was really unhappy about it. And then when the book came out, wb 8s wasn't even named on the cover. Maude Gone, the other uh, important personage, her daughter, is all gone. None of the names on the cover. Another woman with no head this time, had <laughs> a bare a bare back. And again, just it was just awful. And the comment I was getting from readers almost all the time was, I would never have read your book if somebody hadn't told me, you know. And I'm sure people who bought the book, Going by the cover must have been very disappointed with what they found inside as well. So it it wasn't good, yeah. So when this change then came into my life, I was at the end of my publishing with Penguin. And it's really quite difficult then. Where do you go then, you know? And then illness came and then everything else came. And then self publishing came.
1: So with Penguin then, um, hmm. it feels to me like you've got two books that you loved – that were wrecked for you did you have you got the rights back did you sort of get them back and publish them the way you wanted them to be published in the end
2: that's exactly what happened yeah so I I came to self-publishing I said I'd publish a poetry pamphlet because that would be a, an easy way to practice and see you know see was this for me at first I was very skeptical I didn't I didn't think I'm not very technically minded and you know all that kind of stuff but, um, and I didn't know, you know, my experience, my previous experience of self-publishing was, as I said, with print book and it had been a lot of hard work. So e-books at that time were pretty new and I didn't know how it would go. So I did I did poetry first. But the process then, as I went through it, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is just absolutely radical. This changes everything. You know, for somebody who had worked as an agent and saw what went on behind the smoke and mirrors of that publication day, I could see that the ability to have your own rights, own your own intellectual property and guide your own books and your own business was just completely amazing. So I set about then trying to get my rights back from Penguin. And luckily, because I had worked as an agent and did know about publishing contracts, I had asked for a very good reversion clause and because that was there, I was able to get my rights back. And yes, the first thing I did then was republish those books with the covers and titles and everything that I had envisaged for them the first time out. And I was really lucky. They got a second lease of life. They did very well. At that time, it was easy to do well. You know, it's not as easy to do well now. Back then, all you had to do was put a good book together, really, as a self publisher. And you were pretty much um, almost guaranteed a readership, I would say. So, yeah, it was it's such a pleasure. I can't even, pleasure didn't even come close. I don't know what the word is. It was just so wonderful to, to have had that opportunity.
1: Brilliant. And then also, what did you learn um, from being an agent that you took forward into your indie author career? Because you've seen all sides of it, really, haven't you?
2: Yeah, I mean the most fundamental and important thing I learned was the value of IP, the value of intellectual property. Authors are terrible in you know at valuing our own, um, because I think of the way publishing went, and because it was so difficult to get published, and because we you know we're, we've been trained into a sort of publish me please mentality that's very disempowering. And so grateful to anybody who who would publish um, rather than going into meeting with publishers as um, an equal, an independent equal. Authors generally just give their copyright away, don't read the contract, don't understand, you know, sign stuff they don't understand and all of that. So, and um, the value of of owning your own rights was something that was very clear to me, yeah, having seen how hard publishers fight to get as many rights as they can, you know, as across a, large a territory as they can for as long a time period as they can, where an agent or uh, an author going into a negotiation should be looking to and um, limit the rights and uh to the smallest possible territory for the shortest possible time, so knowing that seeing the values that they put on trying to get rights and how rights generate income through all sorts of different formats over time um, gave me a very different perspective on the whole thing because I could see that if if a publisher owns your um publishing rights for a while you know you've licensed your rights to them for that period of time they own your metadata they own your branding they own your positioning they own the process that you will go through the contacts you'll make it's it so much goes with owning the rights that you are not in business as an author you can't be you're a content provider, really. And and in most cases, most authors, you're a peace worker being paid very poorly indeed. So I think it gave me that, per- that 360 degree perspective that it's almost impossible for the average author to have.
1: I'm interested to know how you got from that very difficult first novel that you were saying took many years to write to getting mm-hmm. these two out. Um, it seems in, in reasonably rapid succession.
2: Well, the first one they published, you know, I, I wrote the first one and then I'm, you, you're rewriting and then you're putting the second one together. So that by the time they got that they acquired them, they were both in a pretty good shape. The second one wasn't finished, but it was well along. You know, I knew having written that first one. I knew then how to write fiction, so I was able to write the second one much faster. Though I'm not, I'll never be one of those authors who, who you know, who writes very quickly and bangs out books. Uh, I wouldn't want to be, to be frank. i The process of writing and words and putting words together and getting a sentence to click is very much part of the whole thing for me. If you took that away and I was just focused on, you know, get the book out, get the book out, get the book out. I I wouldn't I would be doing something else.
1: So it's quite clear where your formative experiences came from. Um you when did our ally sort of become a twinkle in your eye? When when did you sort of think that there's something here, something that we could do in this self publishing arena?
2: Well Again, because of my my previous experience and and what I saw when I looked at self-publishing, I saw one thing, but the entire discourse that was going on around me with with my author friends. And this is now we're you know, close to a decade ago now. So things are very different now. But back then. You know, everybody thought you you only would self-publish if you couldn't get a publisher. For example, would be one thing, one kind of attitude. And you know, all this tsunami of crap, and you know, all this kind of very dismissive, um, point of view on self-publishing, and which was so contrary to what I saw when I looked at it. That was one one aspect. So I looked around for an association to join. I wanted to. To connect with other authors who were self-publishing, because all my author friends were were trad published and had no intention of self-publishing at that time. Most of them are all happily self-publishing now, but this again, as I say, is back then. And um, looked for that, for an association, and there just wasn't one. Anybody who was working in the sphere, there was a lot of of troubling stuff going on in in the sector already at that stage. Very poor vanity presses that had kind of popped up um, or or have been in operation for a very long time. But a lot of them are coming in, seeing the opportunity and, uh, you know, lots of things. Happen. And then I thought, will I, you know, uh, will I see if we could start something going and, and get together with some people and see could we actually get an association moving and I really had a, a very long dark night <laughs> where yeah. I thought I knew if I took this on I knew, what, I knew what I was taking on and I knew it meant fewer books and uh, a divided life in a way you know so my own private writing and publishing would, would be there but there would also be this very different sort of role but when I thought about it, it just seemed to me to be so huge and such a huge thing happening in in my world, if you like. Uh, I had only ever worked in in words and in books and media. I wanted to be there at the heart of it, kind of beating the drum for writers. And it gave, it allowed me to bring in all the bits I loved about being in an, an agent while dropping all the bits I didn't love, contracts and negotiation and all that sort of stuff. Um, it seemed to bring in every skill I had spent the previous three decades acquiring. And so, yeah, I put out feelers, the response was very good and, um, except from official, done, uh, part of the response was terrible, mm. <laughs> but among authors the response was very good. So, we had a launch at Launch Book Fair in um, 2012, and that went really well. And then it just kind of took off, to be honest. I never imagined, I thought it was going to be a quiet little thing in the corner. I never imagined that it would take off the way it did.
1: You've actually built an international business now, which is pretty stunning. I mean, everybody knows it now, don't they? And, and also, it's perpetuated, self-perpetuated, because people like Mark Dawson, Joanna Penn, you know, people who value it, um spread the word internationally as well, so do, do you feel this thing's got a life of its own now
2: oh it it definitely does but um it does, but it does need careful husbandry at the same time so you know it's first of all it's a non profit so it's it's bound by certain sort of rules and regulations and so on that's one thing that kind of keeps you very engaged w- with it uh, at a very practical level, but also it's um the indie world's brilliant and and the indie movement is amazing and and the thing that's most amazing about it is that it's a really broad church so there are people with very different very strongly held opinions who are held together by this joint interest that is Loose. Each person is the expert in their own business, in their own lives, in their own writing, in their own publishing, and they come together around this common cause, which is fantastic. It means, though, that the voice of Ally has to be very carefully kind of, um, what's the word, not steered exactly, but just, you're kind of there. It's like, you know... Shepherded. Yeah, something like that. It does have its own life and, it, you know, there's a loose, loose, it's a very loose sort of um, allegiance and, as I said, there's no controlling sort of um, narrative or anything like that. But there is a certain way that it's different from other groups that are like it and other parts of the indie world and... I hope that the thing that is, you know, most different about it is that it is completely inclusive of everybody at all sorts of different levels, whether you're just starting out, whether you want to, you know, put out a lot of books quickly and, and you know, be Amazon only, KU only, to or you want to go wide or, you know, you just want to do a a book for personal reasons. There is room there for everybody. And um yeah, that means that it it can, I don't think it can ever be just let off, do you know? It it has to be, um, yeah, shepherded, I'll use your words. There is another word banging at the back of my head, but it's, <laughs> it's half past it's the best we can London. do, Lorna,
1: between us, shepherded.
2: Bra- Brain is dead. <laughs> two, yeah. two writers,
1: that's the best we can do. <laughs>
2: it's fine, it's fine. I think I think you know what I mean.
1: I do, I know exactly what you mean. So, um, I don't want to dwell on Ally because I, I kind of feel like I've heard you answer those questions before. And I want to find out more about you as a writer, you know, the stuff that I don't hear. Um, so when you, I mean, you'd had what most writers would love, which was a two book deal with an extremely well-known publisher. And then you went it alone. What were your first experiences like in self-publishing? Did did Again, did you get traction straight away or was it a little bit of a struggle at the beginning?
2: no struggle, no. And I I do think that was partly to do with the times. Um, As I said, it was much easier then. And so, you know, my books were instantly successful and did very well. And I found it incredibly exciting, the direct contact with the reader. And that was all new to me as well. So I had started blogging. Um, when cancer hit actually my my first blog post was on the night of the launch of my second book when and my hair had just started falling out. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so that was, a, it was a, a really strange kind of time. So I had started blogging and blogging had been hugely helpful to me through all of that time, just kind of getting a handle on where I was. And, just, uh, you know, I loved blogging and I saw self-publishing as an extension of that in a way, um, except that you got paid. Um, now blogs can be made to pay now, but mine wasn't that kind of blog, never really has been. Um, So, yeah, it wasn't at all, I didn't have a moment's frustration and I, you know, I suppose perhaps uh, some people might say that coloured my view of self-publishing, but, you know, there, I don't think so really, I, from having seen what happens and the way in which it keeps changing, I think it is so much easier to find your own place and your own way in self-publishing than it is when you give away all your rights to one, um, you know, to one outlet and have such little control, such little freedom.
1: You also write poetry, which is, I believe, or I hear, the hardest thing on earth to sell.
2: Nonsense. <laughs> this is the thing with self-publishing, uh, you know, we are breaking all those those myths it's completely different when you self-publish digitally. It's digital really that makes this difference. It's not really so much about self-publishing or, or except that you have that all important intellectual property and can guide yourself through it. But digital publishing changes that no matter what, you know, how minority your interest is. When you get a global audience, if you know how to reach them, you've got enough people and, um, at the moment actually poetry is having a a heyday um robin cutler was telling me at nashville we were over nashville for digital book world that the top selling um writers in ingram spark now are the poets wow yep
1: that is very interesting (laughs)
2: That's it, you see. And and people don't. There's so much misinformation about all sorts of things. And we only know the bit we know about our own area. It's very difficult now to get a sort of a, a clear vision of what is actually going on. But if you think about it, there's, there are enough poetry readers in the world to give any poet an income. Um, if the poet knows how to publish well and and does what is necessary, that's the big <laughs> hurdle. A lot of poets, you know, just don't go there in that way. They don't want to think about publishing or they don't want to think about the commercial side of, of what they do necessarily. Some do and some are doing fantastically well, but... Um, Yes yeah, so there is no I I actually think the key to success in in, in self publishing is the opposite to before which was all about you know when Penguin were doing me it was about getting as many readers as you can on that first outlet while your book is in the store you know get every get everything all behind that big push and get just get as many books sold as you can It's completely different in self-publishing. It's about narrowing right down into the thing that you do really well and finding and attracting the readers who love what you do. So a poet can do that as easily and a literary fiction writer and all the other people you'll hear people say don't sell. They can do that once they realise they're just another genre. And that's a very hard thing to get across to a literary fiction author or a a poet it's, you know, you're not the pinnacle of some sort of writing world. We're all down here on the same level and, you know, new genres are coming in and you're just another genre that happens to be the genre that people in publishing like to read. But it's, um, yeah, it's a different, it's a completely different mindset is needed.
1: When I look at your very long row of books in Amazon, mm-hmm. um, I notice two, two things that I notice. Uh, one is that the quality of the covers is very high. And two, particularly with the, um, the poetry books, you've got a distinct and, and consistent branding there. Did you know this stuff from day one, the, the, you know, the importance of those things? Funny with
2: the with poetry book, uh, the reason they're just you know con- as you say consistent branding was just I because poetry every poem is different and so it's it's um, it's not like a book uh, you know in the sense that the, the, it's a collection of lots of bits of writing that are very, very different. So my idea was just to put out um, the poems as they come and then just put them in a, co- a cover that just changes color each time. And just call it poetry one, poetry two, poetry three, and and a, a subtitle that is the name of one of the poems in the book, and that's just what I did for convenience, really, more than anything else. It was only afterwards that I realised that that's actually a very good thing to do. And I, um, in traditional publishing, you don't see that so much. You you see it in commercial fiction, but you wouldn't see it in poetry. Um, but yeah, it's it. No, that came about by accident. In terms of the quality of the covers, I never, for a second, thought about using a um, a ready made cover or um, you know doing it myself or whatever. I don't have the skills, and I'm also I love I love good book design, and I worked in magazines, and you know I like working with designers, and I work with the amazing um, Jane Dixon Smith and. Um, Andrew Brown do, did the poetry covers he's uh, designed for writers and it's I've worked with both of them since the start and worked really well with them but I've changed changed the covers over time and um, you know we did a, a set on the Irish books that I was talking about earlier on uh, at the beginning and I think they were they went very well then but what worked in that kind of fiction then doesn't work now you know so they they to be changed along the way what's
1: writing like for you are you a pen and paper writer a computer writer how how do you do it and do you do it in great stints or short bursts
2: um, I do it in 90 minutes and uh, 90 minute um, bursts I suppose you would call them I prep for it so I always know what I'm going to write I do my most creative writing first thing in the morning before I do anything else. So no matter what's going on in Ally, I will get at least one 90-minute stretch first thing in the morning. And I just hold to that. Um, Speech to text is the reason that I have far more books than I would have had otherwise. I So I, you know just that was just revolutionary for me not having to type everything because i had like many journalists possibly you too i had rsi from my journalism days so it, you know speech to text has been fantastic uh, is
1: that dragon order that you're using for that
2: well it, it used to be but now i just use i use my phone a huge amount you know i go for a walk with my phone and write the how i write has changed been changed hugely by technology i do however have a huge faith in pen and paper as something that gets a quality of writing that is different. So I use all these different methods at different times, depending on where I am. And I think the variety helps as well. I think if you just do one thing religiously all the time, it's not as, you're not as productive as if you have different uh, methods and modes for different times of the day or different, you know, depending on how you're feeling. So one thing I do every day as well is I free write um, for a set amount of time just to have the, the pen on paper experience. And I don't know whether it's because that's how we learned to write, you know, so it takes you back to the to that sort of primal place or whether it's something to do with the tactile nature of, you know, the hand and the ink and the handwriting and all of that. But. Um yeah, I've, I, I really have faith in it as something that goes a bit deeper. So when I need to go deep, that's where I go. And I would write poetry more by hand than anything else.
1: How much um, sort of tech do you do in terms of the processing of the books? Do you, do you, do you write it, do you edit, it and then hand it over? Or, or are you really embroiled in, you said you didn't touch the covers, but do you do the mm-hmm. formatting or anything like that?
2: Yes, I do. I use vellum. Uh, Development is just fantastic. So I used to to get people to format it, but I take formatting in now to the editing process. So I here's what I try to do, okay? But I'm terrible because I pick away at things, you know. I I write and rewrite too much. But when things go properly, I prepare very well. I I write fast, then I edit kind of slowly. One or two passes through. And then I have, um, it goes to my editor and she comes back with what she comes back with. And I have another go based on her notes. And then she has another go. It goes to a proofreader at that point. And then the formatter. But each step along the way is, you know, I, I'm back in there tidying and fixing and making something better. So I try not to touch it after the proofy has had it. Mm. But because I format it then, sometimes I, I'm i off again and then I have to get another proofing done by the time <laughs> I finish because I've introduced errors. So I'm trying to get myself onto a, a process where it's cleaner, you know, because I don't think all that fiddling about that I do actually makes all that much difference at all. It's um It's very satisfying to me, but I think there's also a bit of procrastination built. In there, you know, and it's just it's kind of fussing for fussing's sake. So I'm trying to trying to get myself to to move more quickly because I have lots of projects I want to do, and you know, not getting any younger and all that.
1: Well, let's talk about that because uh, on your websites just looking at the navigation, you can see many of the elements of your life, and these don't include Ally. So we'll put Ally to the side and just focus on what you do because you've got this whole go creative in business sub-life uh if you if you want you know you've got a, another business going that looks like it could be just as big as ally uh, of the quiet so why i'm interested in why you take this kind of whole approach to self-publishing uh, you know why not just write a couple of books and get on with it you instead you've built this whole business around it
2: yeah well oh god why i suppose because at heart i'm probably a teacher as well as a writer you know so I see it as a form of of teaching in a way and so when I learn something I always remember when I in my first teaching job it was a history and I was given some part of our Ireland's history I think it was a European history that I didn't really know anything about so I was literally going home uh, having taught the class that day, going home that night to get four pages ahead of something so I could go back in the next day and actually teach them. And sometimes I feel I'm still doing that because as soon as I discover something and find out, you see, I think this change is just so huge, uh, what, what we are going through, that I just I'm very excited by it still 10 years on and I, I want to kind of pass it on. And And the thing that seems most exciting to me is that writing has gone from being a freelancing job, a freelance you know, a freelancer's gig into something that you can build a sustainable business around. And that's new for creatives, you know? and the the go creative stuff that I do is not just for writers. What I came to see was that uh, the self-publishing author had far more in common with other creative entrepreneurs, like you know, sculptors, jewelry designers, but also activists, and counsellors, coaches, uh, you know, all sorts of different people. What distinguishes them in my mind and what makes a creative business is that they bring a sense of passion and mission into it. That what, you know, what you work in uh, when you're working in the business, what you're working at, you would do you do it for its own sake. You're you're very much driven by the passion, but you also need to balance that with profit or you can't keep going and and. It's sort of balancing that out I've seen a number of really talented people kind of get caught there and get lost and it seems to me that there are just core principles that we can follow if we try to do business as usual the way business is usually done in the conventional more commercial world we crash and burn if we stay just in the creative stuff it becomes very frustrating so you know, I do work with a lot of writers who complain that they're not selling but do nothing in to help themselves to sell. And there's a mindset shift that's needed there and an understanding also of the ways in which creative business is different. And so I wanted to pass that on, but not just to writers, to all creatives, to everyone who runs a passion-powered business, because I think – that is the biggest change we're witnessing in the world at the moment. I think we're, we're moving from um, old style business, digital business is different, creative business is different. And I'm not hearing that dialogue from the creative's perspective. I'm hearing loads of people talking about it, loads of people talking about innovation, creativity, how important they are, all this kind of stuff. But these are people who are not creative. They don't know how to actually go through the seven stages of the creative process and produce something and put it out there and sell it. You know, uh, it's only people who have done that who actually know what it means. And then to do it digitally is very different to, you know, opening a corner shop or whatever. So, yeah, I think the reason I keep doing all these things is I just find them hugely interesting and hugely exciting and want to bring more people along because I think it's I think it's important that we know how to do it well and uh, there's often very little standing between somebody and the ability to do well it's often just a mindset shift that's needed
1: well, that takes us rather neatly to the book that you're going to be uh, promoting when this interview runs over New Year. Um, the three pathways to profit for creative entrepreneurs, which sounds like music to my ears, Orna. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, I don't want to read the book. I want to eat it. I want to digest it. <laughs> so so <laughs> t- tell me what the, I mean, I know what the premise of the book is. It's obviously the title as it should be, but just tell us, you know, talk us through what, what this book covers.
2: Yeah, I think well, its impetus was was what I was just talking about there, and I think this is what we need to understand as as creative entrepreneurs, whether we are writers or whoever, whatever our core content is, you know, whatever is the core component of the work that we're doing. There are certain things that are the same for us all if we're working in the digital space and these are the three things that we need to balance we need to wear three separate hats and very often people are aware of one or, or two but they're not aware of the, of how the three work together and so that is uh, you are the maker who is, let's take authors because it's authors who are listening to this podcast, more than likely, you are writing the books and pro- producing, you know, doing the covers, the formatting, all the things that we've we've discussed here. So that's the maker. And you are the director, the creative director, You who is the person who manages the manager, who manages the processes of the business. And this is often where things fall down. People, uh, creative minded people, passion powered businesses don't look closely enough at profit and how profit feeds into what gets made and how it gets made and how it goes out there. And also then just the the processes that underline it would have taken most creatives out of business for, you know, all the decades until now. But now we've got such fantastic tools looking after those processes. They are very light and very easy for a creative to manage, but a lot of us are afraid of them. We don't want to talk about money even you know even though money is such a lovely thing to have and our relationship with money isn't all that it could be and very often that stops is just putting in simple obvious processes and we don't build in the idea of profit from the start we talk about doing things you know until i have the experience or we don't price properly and all that kind of stuff that's the manager's job it sounds. Then, for, sorry, I beg your pardon. Sorry, yeah. It
1: sounds very much like a manifesto for a modern kind of um, uh, smaller business.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, I suppose it's its guiding thought process is is a manifesto, but the books themselves are actually practical guides. They're very much about you know, in order to for this to work, um, these things all need to be in place. Now, which one is not there for you? And if it's this, you know, if your block is here, then this is what you do. And if your block is there, then do something else. It also definitely pushes down hard on the need for connection with the creative part of ourselves, which we're all in danger of becoming quite removed from if we stay busy, busy, you know, in the in the busy, busy world with all the digital technology and everything because we're working in there. We need to be really cognizant of also feeding and nurturing ourselves at the creative level. So, you know, play and rest, uh, part of the premise of the book is that creative rest and creative play, they're not breaks from the creative process. They actually are the creative process and relying on the subconscious and understanding the kinds of practices you need to do to make that live in yourself gets so much more production without all the effort willpower is one way but it's quite limited when you compare it to the creative power that you have there if you just invest in it a bit so there's a lot about that as well.
1: Now interestingly um, coming back to your Amazon author profile you've got poetry you've got uh, literary stroke historical fiction I I, I guess in there as well but you've also got nonfiction. now if you talk to the Chris Foxes of this world they'd say you were crazy mixing up you know, all those different genres that you need to mm. have different author names. But um, this takes me back to the, the title of the book, which is positioning. And, yeah. and and so do you do that because you're Orna Ross and this is what Orna Ross does? Is that the thinking behind that?
2: It is really. I mean, I wouldn't if you can if you can be single minded, please do. Mm. <laughs> it does make life easier. You know, there is no doubt about it in terms of when a reader and it took me a long time to understand how to separate out these strands. And in a way, I'm still learning that and, you know, still improving that process and I think will be for some time. So, I mean, Chris is not wrong in in saying that, but, you know, some of us just aren't built that way. And if I went that way, I'm pretty sure I'd dry up fairly quickly I all my work benefits by the other work, you know, each thing brings brings the other alive. And so while things can get sometimes feel like it's too full in actual fact, it never is. If you come back to that creative place where everything falls away, which is where you just need to be to make the next thing, then it's fine. And you can do whatever you want. Once you know how to reach the readers that are interested in that so i have loads of people who read my poetry who, who know nothing about ally have the clue you know loads of people in ally as you say wouldn't know that i do the go creative stuff or the poetry stuff or care you know why should they they get what they need from those books and and once you're okay with that as an author and you're not expecting um, you have to kind of treat each, each line as its own thing and realise that, that readers come to different kinds of books in very different kinds of ways.
1: One of the things I, I was, I don't know why I was surprised about it, but I was surprised that Ally was so quick to jump on uh, blockchain for books because, mm. um, you know, most people still think that Bitcoin is a scam, blockchain is a scam, it's something that will never take off. I feel very much, I remember not getting the internet when the internet came out and, you know, kicking myself ever since and, and feel like the blockchain is, is, is that all over again. Why why have you, Stroke Ally, you know, been so quick to, to grasp blockchain as the future?
2: A few of us, um, well Dan and myself in particular, you know, had a conversation and then um, there were a few few other people and uh, Joanna uh, has a, a big interest as well. And we were, ju- we were just having those conversations. And then I started to look more closely and felt that the underlying, again, it's about the underlying principles, there's an opportunity there. I'm not saying that opportunity will necessarily be brought to, to bear, you know, it it depends on authors recognising what we own, and that's something that we're not, you know, we're not very far along with yet. But if the, if authors did understand the value of their IP and did actually act from that place and live from that place, blockchain has the potential. Um, and I stress, it is potential. And I suppose it's it's a it's a hope to kind of influence it in this direction the potential to, for us to have a creator-led payment chain for the first time ever. So we've always relied on other people to get our stuff out. And as things are at the moment, a huge number of authors have just swapped their dependence on a, a trade publisher and um, to one single self-publishing outlet. None of that is true independence, really. That's, um, so that's the first thing. When you do become truly independent and you realize that all these services are there for you, really, uh, a trade publisher is an author service, not the other way around. When, once your thinking flips around to the right place and the, the origin and the originator is the place where it starts, blockchain can, can facilitate micropayments um, for uh, um, the creator in a way that's not possible under, under current payment models. And that's why.
1: Brilliant. So, look into your crystal ball. You've been doing this for a long, long time. Where do you think it's going? What way is the wind blowing with publishing, self-publishing?
2: The wind is behind authors. It's a fair wind and... You know, it's blowing in the right direction uh, from where I'm standing, if you know what I mean. I think I really do. It's a cliche, total cliche now that there's never been a better time to be an author, but it remains true. That's not to say it suddenly became an easy job. And it's not to say that self-publishing is an easy option. It's not. But all the reasons that attract you to being an author in the first place are there and multiplied in abundance on the creator side and the potential on the commercial side is is far, far better because you own the, the means of production, as Karls, Karl Marx or somebody like that would have said. And um, so, you know, the wind is behind us. And in less than 10 years, the confidence that's come up in the author community on the indie side I mean, it's really striking now if you go into a room where there are people who haven't ever self-published a book and those who have. And the difference that you see is those who have are talking about things, you know, about reaching their readers. They're talking about making books. They're talking about all sorts of things that are clearly exciting to like them. And on the other side, people are talking about it's quite doom and gloomish, really, Um so, yeah, I think we're heading in the right direction. I think uh, a lot depends on ourselves as a community, how we think of ourselves, how we value ourselves. But uh, I'm very optimistic for the next decade.
1: That was Orna Ross, independent novelist and poet and founder and director of the Alliance of Independent Authors. You can access more information about Orna in this week's show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com and I've placed a link to her brand new book on that page. Coming up on Monday the 7th of January 2019, I'll be chatting to Jeremy Thompson, the Managing Director of Troubadour Publishing at the Book Guild. Now Matador is the company's self-publishing imprint and I've spoken to many authors on this podcast who have used Matador to publish their books. Jeremy's going to be talking me through their alternative to going it alone, and he'll be previewing the 7th Self-Publishing Conference, which takes place in the UK in April 2019. That's it from me for now. Enjoy your New Year celebrations, and I'll be back with Paul's podcast diary this coming Saturday. Until then, bye-bye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.